Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We kick things off at the Pier Hotel this morning with Michael Holland. He's the chairman of Holland & Company and the president and founder of the Holland Balance Fund. Great to have you with us. Great to see you. Great to be here. Once thanks, again. For the, thanks for the coffee, Dan. There you go. <laughs> it is good, I must say. Let's, let's start with the, with the news from yesterday, uh, the prime minister's speech, and sort of what, what you saw there, what you heard there from the prime minister, how you're processing the, the formal start of Brexit as an investor. The beginning of a two-year uh, slog for her, I mean, it's going to be a very difficult, and the, the Scots have uh, made her life even more interesting with their, their recent shenanigans. So I think um, for us, we, we tend to look at the real world, and the numbers coming out of the U.K., David, right now continue to be, for companies, better than expected. So this is a wonderful, we, we, we could have the market in, in the U.K. going up while we're all wringing our hands about what a job she has to do. Meanwhile, the companies are doing okay. On the issue of uncertainty, she stuck to the timetable that she set out yeah. to stick to early on. Does that give you more optimism that these next two years are going to proceed at pace, that she's going to be able to stick to the schedule, that these negotiations will take two years uh, and will be finished by the end? I think it's uh, potentially a continued, continuing mess, but I think she is a wonderful person to be, because she seems resolute, as you just described. I think she's got an opportunity to surprise to the upside, because we all expect a mess. You, you look at the, the overtures in that speech to Europe. What do they portend for you? She, she's, uh, she's talked about the relationship that they have had, indeed, that she wants to have going forward. Yeah. Uh, a lot of happy talk there. Yeah. Uh, where, where are the problems going to arise, uh, as you see it, when it comes to the issues of, of trade and, and security? Well, trade and security, I, I think trade is, 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 the, is the key issue. The security thing is what, what drove the voters, I presume, in, in the U.K. Um, on, the, on the issue of, of trade, I think that if we don't get uh, crazies on the EU side trying to punish uh, the U.K., trying to say to the remaining members who might be wavering a little bit, don't even think about it because look what we did to the U.K. If those people have any any um, important impact on, on what's going on, then it could get messier than we... But I think that at the end of this process, we will look back and say a lot of the pragmatists did get involved. I hope that's the case. You mentioned the data a moment ago, and I wonder what accounts for it uh, as you see it, the fact that there was such pessimism going into the vote. In the immediate aftermath of that vote, the economy would go south. You look at Sterling, I guess that's the, the exception, but uh, it seems like the economy has fared better than many people thought. Why do you think that's the, the case? You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm seeing a simultaneous thing in three places. The U.S., the last couple of quarters, uh, just uh, met with our people who uh, do our China investing and uh, talking about the companies. That things are better in China than people have been expecting, and things are better in the U.K., as he said, and, and uh, kind of broadly across Europe. So this is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just there. And we were told uh, time and again ad nauseum that if Trump got into office, you know, this, this whole stock market thing and the economy would go into the, into the dump, 
That didn't happen here. We heard that Brexit was going to kill the UK and kill the markets. None of these happened. So I think that one of the things that, that is going on is the absence of the negatives mm. is helping people do the animal spirits game a little bit. How do you, you balance uh, political risk at this point? You have it here with, with tax reform, the prospect for tax reform, the prospect for infrastructure spending. You have it overseas with, the, with these elections coming up in France. How much weight are you giving that versus, say, what central banks are doing? Um, I'm going to give you a little advertisement here. Please. Because if, if, you, if you look at Bloomberg this morning, there are a number of articles that refer to just that question, which includes the observation that things have gone better, as I just said a second ago, with respect particularly to the markets, and, and, but also with, with the, the fundamentals. Uh, economic fundamentals, company fundamentals. So as, as we're moving forward here, things are moving apace. Earnings look to be surprising a little bit to the upside around the world, but starting with the U.S. and the numbers we're about to get. And I think that what's going on is the fundamentals are good, so they have been trumping Pun intended. They have been trumping, they have been trumping the, the political worries. And we were supposed to get all of these bad things happening politically uh, affecting the markets, and the, the bad stuff didn't happen to the markets. And I think that's, it feeds on itself then. What's your counsel to an investor who is preoccupied by the politics? How much should he or she be paying attention to the politics versus the, the fundamentals? Um, if my wife is listening, I'd say, <laughs> "Hello, should, if you are, yes. you should spend no time." Yep. You know, but I think very little time. I think to the extent that uh, uh, we get some positive things, for example, we now are talking about tax reform in the U.S. If we get corporate tax reform of, of some kind over the next uh, six months, I think that will help the market somewhat. It'll help, but I think at this time we we have companies. And, and individuals feeling a little bit better about things, so numbers are continuing to surprise a little bit to the upside. If Washington doesn't, if Washington doesn't screw that up, um, <laughs> that's a big bet. But if they don't, that, that's a good thing. But even if they do screw it up, it hasn't been enough to derail what's going on around the world. Have the, the contours of your portfolio changed much over these last few months since, since the election, say? No. Interesting question, because um, I think there, there's been a bit of a rising tide lifting all the boats, but I think the, the, uh, the best companies are continuing to figure out ways. That's a, actually, that's a seminal question, because the, the best companies, the GEs and so on, around the, the Johnson & Johnsons, the, the, uh, the Microsofts, uh, the, 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 the world's great companies have figured out that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to survive globally if we just continue to do smart things and in incorporating the challenges from what may happen in the various countries around the world and their, poli their political miasma. You mentioned uh, you met with these Chinese fund managers, and I wonder what they said about um, the investment landscape in China, the, the appetite for, for investing. How has that changed uh, in, recent, in recent times? Uh, they have some of the same malady we have here, which is the flows that are continuing uh, to grow from the ETFs. So that means that the, the large companies, which are part of the index uh, programs that the ETFs are, are involved in, that they end up with uh, uh, the wind at their backs. So the small and medium-sized companies in the emerging markets, beginning with China, are, are being a little bit ignored. So there's a growing opportunity. That's what we're hearing. But the companies overall are doing a little bit better than people suspected. And the numbers for the coming quarter and the coming year look to be, once again, a little bit better than, than suspected. How do you go about uh, finding companies in which to invest in, in China? What, what, what's your, is the metric different there than it is here or, or in Europe? 
I don't even try. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I, we, what we do try to do is find the smartest people on the ground in Shanghai, Beijing, Hong Kong, uh, who visit all the places around China and, and, and the greater China area. And they, I mean, you have to do it. You have to look at these people face to face and talk about what, what is actually going on in their businesses. And that, for me, we've been doing this. We launched the China Fund, uh, which we're talking about actually. Um, over 20 years ago, and so I've seen major changes. But uh, and we've made some mistakes. But overall, the, the the record is is what it is. It's really good, and made a lot of money over there. But it, we've done it by having people on the ground, spending all their time going visiting companies and seeing what's going on. Do you find the economy to be uh, more transparent? The communications about the economy to be more transparent now versus 20 years ago? Are they getting better at it? Did you say less opaque? <laughs> less Either opaque? the glass empty or full, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are less opaque, uh, uh, but that's a, that's a key point, and it buttresses what I was just talking about in terms of you have to go talk to the people and you know, see if they're lying to you. Um, just maybe a last question here before, but we'll have you come back here after the break. You mentioned the ETF funds. Let's, let's talk about that when you come back, but we saw such a, a big big news out of BlackRock yesterday. How, yeah. how, how important is it? And again, we'll come back and talk more really about it. Really important. Good to talk about. Uh, Great tease. And part of it, <laughs> but part of a trend. You see it. I mean, it's, it's a part of a continuum here. Major trend. All the listeners should pay attention. All right. We'll come back and talk about that with Michael Holland. He's the chairman of Holland & Company, the president and founder of the Holland Balance Fund. He's with us here at the Pier Hotel for our Wheels Up Power Breakfast at the Pier. David Gura and Tom Keene here in New York and worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura and Tom Keene at the Wheels Up Power Breakfast at the Pier Hotel on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. Today we're here with Michael Holland, the chairman of Holland & Company, the president and founder of the Holland Balance Fund. Great to have you with us. Uh, we teased this before break. We were talking about the BlackRock news, and BlackRock deciding yesterday it's going to let go of about 30 people of its active equities yeah. group, and um, wanted to go to you for some perspective on that, the, the importance of that. We, of course, saw the news out of Fidelity a few weeks ago that they're going to do buyouts of, of some 3,000 people. Talk about this trend that's shaping up here and, and what that means for the industry generally. Let me add a third, David. Please. T. Rowe Price a, a week ago, talking about robo-investing. Uh, I thought of the three, the most interesting of them was T. Rowe Price, which had a long history of very successful active management. Um, uh, the the people there over the years have, have done a spectacular job uh, on, on uh, a number of fronts, and yet they are part of this uh, movement toward computers, Internet, and artificial intelligence. I think it's not a cyclical thing. I think it's secular. I think that the numbers are very difficult to uh, uh, ignore in terms of particularly the, the efficient large-cap markets around the world, starting with the U.S., so that when you have, as BlackRock did, uh, money managers who are paid a lot of money to manage large-cap stocks and the ETFs that, that across the, the aisle uh, that they have, which are index okay. uh, funds, which have very little in the way of expenses associated with them, and they can charge very little to the consumer, it's, it's a no-brainer. So that's going to continue. It's just it's too obvious. Larry Fink yesterday spoke about changing the ecosystem, and that implies, uh, to my ear, at least some agency that he's going to be able to do so. Uh, is BlackRock behind here? Uh, are these companies behind a, a trend, or are they going to be able to catch up, do you think? Well, I think they'll catch up. I think you know there, there's a lot of money to be, uh, to be made uh, or, or lost, and I think they will 
move very quickly. Uh, Larry Fink has hired some very high-powered uh, 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 internet kinds of people over the last couple of years, and I think they're 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 fully prepared to to, to win this game. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. Tom Keen here with David Gura. Wheels of Power Breakfast getting ready. This is a good chore for you. They think we've convinced um, the producers of this wonderful uh, uh, entertainment vehicle that it's a chore for us to come to the Pierre Hotel. No, we get to we get You've to leave the building. We get that. to walk, and yeah, no, but you're walk right. Out fresh air, beautiful spring morning. <laughs> Great food here, wonderful yeah. hospitality, yes. an elegant breakfast and venue. Even Michael Holland showed up for yeah. me. <laughs> Michael, help me here with robo-investing. That's not in Graham Dodd and Cottle. I don't even think it's in Jack Bogle. Would you please explain what robo-investing is? It's just one more facet of using computers to help make money for, for individual investors, Tom. And I think that um, it, it is simply a way of... Uh, eliminating the potential screw-ups that we humans can do and the the and, and eliminating the fees that we humans can charge for those mistakes that's really important because a lot of times you end up with a high-priced product that, that is, is an inferior product i'm going to go inner princeton on you here harvard guy and and, and tell, ask you what jack bogle would say at four cents it it it, it four tenths of a percent at seven tenths of a percent how can you afford to do anything with computers with the with the fee battle that's going on well, I think uh, what, what's going to happen is uh, we will have a continuing migration for a lot of investors, which has begun several years ago and is picking up steam over the last couple of years, where people are realizing the in a 2% world, we were talking a little while ago in the, the market check, we have a 2% world if you look across the uh, uh, fixed income markets. Uh, you, you can't ignore the the uh, uh, the fees the way we used to when we had a 10 and 15 percent return world. What do you say to, to somebody who's uh, nearing graduation from from college or graduate school, thinking about getting into this business? How radically has it changed? Is it changing? And and um, what kind of jobs are going to exist for somebody who's interested in getting into investing? So, I, for the young people who are listening, Dave, that's a really important question. Uh, to go to the traditional stuff in Wall Street, as their uh, uncles or their parents might have done, doesn't make a lot of sense without going the extra step and acknowledging what we're just talking about, which is you better have your computer skills way up there and incorporate that in how you approach this business in the future. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is, is one of the one of the best people to, to think about. You know, he changed the business. The business is changing again. He changed the business. Uh, well, we're going to run out of time here. We should mention that Mr. <laughs> Bloomberg is principal owner of Bloomberg LP and has a modest interest in this radio station. Uh, and, well, Michael, we've got to have you come back here to talk about this, about the changes in the business, because the sequence, as you mentioned, David, the number of announcements, including T. Rowe Price, has been uh, absolutely extraordinary. David Gurr and Tom Kane, we're beginning a good number of hours here at our Wheels Up Power Breakfast, a Pierre Hotel. This has become a wonderful part of our Thursdays at Bloomberg to be here. Is Megan Murphy going to be with us? Is I see her room? over yonder. She's, yeah. she's like entered, an entered the room. <laughs> Next from Bloomberg Business Week, Megan Murphy. This is Bloomberg.
Why don't you bring uh, in a gentleman who's the only one here at the Pier Hotel who knows what a white paper is? There you go. <laughs> Get his thoughts on that. Just a moment. Ian Harnett joins us now. He's the chief investment strategist and co-founder at ASR, as you said, joining us here at the Pier. And I want you to play a spectral veterinarian here at the top. Give us your sense of the health of the animal spirits, your, your read on yeah, the role they're playing right now. So I think that, you know, the thing that we're concerned about is that the all this soft data, the, the animal spirits, you know, this is all about U.S. consumers and the U.S. corporate effectively having mentally spent those tax cuts. The trouble is that the hope of that fiscal easing is going to confront the reality of the monetary tightening that has already taken place. You know, we don't need another rate rise to to drag that, you know, even further. Short rates are up, long rates are up, and the dollar is up over the last six months. And in the past, that tends to drag down economic growth. So, you know, the hard data, we can see that it's actually really struggling when you look at retail sales, auto sales, housing sales. You know, anything that's stuff is actually finding it hard to deliver. Um, And, you know, that's going to be the reality. And you look at the money supply data as well, CNI loan growth, that's all decelerating. You know, so I, I think it's, we've got a lot of hope there. Do you see how Ian Hartnett's having tea here it at the lovely. Pier Hotel? I'm a Brit. I'm a Brit. You know, wouldn't you just expect that? <laughs> putting down triple espressos <laughs> and he's, he has tea. Is much, more, much more refined. I mentioned Tobias Lefkowitz, who was our, our guest here yeah. earlier in the week, and, and his comments on the fact that the soft data, to his yeah. to his eye at least, is is indicating what's to come for the, the economy. A lot of people very happy with the optimism mm-hmm. expressed uh, in those data. Uh, what are you seeing? Well, you know, I think if you look back in the history, you can see the way that soft data does normally lead the hard data. But it leads by about two to three months. So if it looks like 2009, yeah, the soft data took off and then the real data picked up. But 2013, the soft data picked up and then had to come down and meet the reality. I want you to help our listeners with a concept that's really hard to get a handle on. Atlanta does this with their Wuji Index, which is if things outside of central banks become more tighter, strong dollars, you just mentioned – How does that be equivalent to a rate rise where you guys say this happened, this happened, that happened, and it's like two equivalent rate increases? What did translate that? You know, so what you're trying to do there is to see whether it is what's going to impact the corporate sector, what's going to impact the household sector. And when we look back in the past, we can see that those periods of strong U.S. dollar growth, you know, so look back to the early 1980s, you know, how much was that equivalent to in terms of holding down the um, earnings growth, holding down um, economic activity? And as you saw between 1982 and 1985, you know, that 30% rise in the dollar actually led to three years of negative earnings growth, weak economic activity, and unemployment going up from 8% to 11%, Tom. So, you know, you're trying to see how much mentally, you know, that you could have done, okay. if you'd have had to have raised short rates or long rates, what would be in the equivalent number? So here's the unfair Thursday question. Where That's are okay. we on Taylor Rule equivalency yet? If Taylor Rule is this pure monetary model yeah. with all this other stuff going on, have we really closed the gap on John B. Taylor's model? So on our models, yes, the Taylor Rule is pretty close to being where you are. But if you look at the shadow rates that you were talking <clears> about, <throat> we've actually seen a 4% rise in those shadow rates over the last three years. Now, you know, if the economy is close to the to, to the, 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 the the you know neutral point, you know, our worry is that actually you shouldn't be tightening too much further. We only think you're going to get one more rate rise out of the Fed this year. So th- this is critical. Can we end the end of the year as we go into tax reform and all this other mystery stuff? Restrictive? Where we have a restrictive policy? I, 
you know, our worry is that if you don't get that fiscal expansion coming through, then, yeah, you're going to see, you know, the economy actually slowing down. We know that this is close to the peak of the inflation cycle as well, and that at that point, the Fed's going to find it very difficult. So this is why we think the Fed's going to put that second rate rise in in May, but it's going to find it very difficult to push through for a third or a fourth in the second half of the year um, because they don't want to be too restrictive. They will be data dependent, which is coming back to what Tom was saying before the break. We get these data, these GDP data shortly at, uh, at 8.30 Wall Street time. How do you regard GDP? What does it tell you about it's the economy? Noisy. How much credence do you, do <laughs> you get? Kathleen Hayes says it's noisy. Yeah, yeah it's noisy. It's backward looking. So I think you've got to take it with a pinch of salt. You've got to look at the broad trend in data. What's the monetary data saying? What's the economic data? You know, the, 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 the real economy data. And what's the financial market saying? Now, I think my worry is that when you look at things like financial conditions, they're actually telling you more about the equity market, the credit market, and they are discounting a big rise in investment. And the big challenge is can you get that investment coming through without the tax cuts? You know, uh, on the subject of tax cuts, I was pouring, pouring over your note and, and the line stood out to me. It said, changes to corporate tax could prove disruptive both within the U.S. and overseas. I don't think this is something we've talked about enough. We've talked about the, the potential for it. There seems to be enthusiasm for changing the tax code, but we haven't talked about the disruptiveness of it. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, how the corporate sector deals with that, I think the big risk here is that because of that first-year tax deductibility of investment, you know, the, the, the why would you do investment now? If you think there might be a tax code change, you know, in six months' time or three months' time, and if that gets pushed back again, you know, so our worry is that you get this disappointment about investment coming through in the second half of the year. Yeah, there'll be some energy-related capex coming through, but will broader capex actually improve? And if that doesn't happen, and at the same time Chinese growth is slowing, then the pressure for the global economy to actually disappoint, and you're certainly not to get to Mr. Bullard's new regime. You know, that's the. Uh, What's fascinating here is there's another side of the debate of the, of the many people we speak to, which is even if the U.S. stumbles or is tepid or is average, there's a global improvement going on. I believe your notes suggest you don't agree. Yeah, no, you know, so there was a global improvement going on. You know, we believe that there's been a cyclical Asian inventory story that has been driving the bulk of the improvement, both in the real economy, but also in the, um, the, the markets as well. Now, our worry is that if that was driven by Asia, if that was driven by the Chinese stimulus that we saw at the start of last year and through to the middle of the last year, and that is starting to wane, that actually that inventory is shortage is now being replaced. Wow. We're seeing the pickup in shipments, and that takes some of these pressures off, okay. takes the pricing pressures off, takes the air freight pressure off. Well, not that you're the most cynical person at the Pierre Hotel. I got that award this morning. Always. But are you saying the Chinese goosed their economy to get to the political congresses? And now, just like in America, frankly, after the election, oops, and there's a little bit of a well, you a know, tepid, I, I, I think we, I'd be even manner? more cynical than that, Tom. Which oh, is shocked. that they, they goosed it so much that actually they don't want to tell you how much they goosed it. So on our Chinese tracker, we think Chinese growth is running at eight and a half percent. But you know, nobody wants to tell President Trump that they're growing at eight and a half percent when the U.S. is growing at you know potentially one that we might hear this morning. So you know. From that point of view, they can, they, you know, when you look at Shanghai house prices up 20-odd percent, Beijing house prices up 20-odd percent, much more consistent with an even stronger number than the 6.5 type 6.9 numbers that they're printing. You know, so they can afford to see the economy decelerate going into the plenum. And then if it weakens through 6.5%, they'll turn on the spigot once again. You do this show, and by Thursday, you can pick up on the themes of the week. Yeah. And C&I loans <laughs> is something that's come up yeah. over and over again. Yeah. 
What do you see there? What, what should our listeners take note of in CNI loans? Yeah, well, I think what it highlights is that actually the corporate sector is quite extended. And as you see the expectation of rate rises coming through, well, why would you want to increase your, your, your exposure to debt? Debt levels are already quite high. They're back to 1990-type levels, as, a, as you know, looking at the bottom-up data relative to sales. Even interest costs are relatively high, given how low interest rates are. So, you know, the expectation of higher rates is never great. For, uh, for for monetary uh, aggregates, it, it, to me it's just well. Let's come back. Uh, Ian Hartnett with us uh, with ASR with the course's work, uh, particularly out of Europe, and we'll come back uh, with Dr. Hartnett to advance the conversation forward. Not only, I guess we could talk Brexit. We, we could, could wait, talk you know. the United Kingdom. Is, yeah, we small well, news item. I, I just <laughs> wish Americans could speak like Prime Minister May. I don't mean the content. I don't want to editorialize it, but yeah. what it was Churchillian. Is, would you suggest, David? She, she understood the import of the, the moment. She I almost think, yeah. knew the details. Yeah. Uh, almost did it. <laughs> I didn't editorialize Faint there, that folks. well, yeah. want to say that. We had to go nerdy once a week. We're going to do that right now with Ian Hartnett of ASR Research. This is a real treat, folks. This is what Bloomberg Surveillance is about. Um, many of you know the name Robert Engel of New York University and Clive Granger, the laureates who've been with us. Uh, Ian Hartnett uh, studied in the same milieu under David Henry at Oxford years ago. Yeah. And the world is a is a world of mathematics and error and probability and managing mistakes. I would suggest there is a massive distrust of a large part of the a- a audience, including the President of the United States, in using economic data. That epsilon in the back of the equations, how bad is it right now? And is it bad because of the great distortion? Well, I think that, you know, what you've got is a situation where, you know, the economics profession needs to regain the trust of society. You know, our view is that actually part of the problem with society, you know, and, and the, some of the issues that we've seen in Brexit and here in the United States is that actually, you know, economics hasn't served society well. And, you know, what we need to get back to is actually <coughs> making sure that the data is accurate right. and that the views are, 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 are more uh, appropriate. But critical going to William Sharp of Stanford University. Yeah. Michael Holland was with us earlier, and we all know that there is a distortion in the investment sphere because of totally unnatural nominal and real rates. Is that same distortion in Chair Yellen's economics because she doesn't have a real fixed income market to work with? Well, you know, I think that, that, yeah, but this isn't, in a way, the first time we've had this. We had very low interest rates in the past, you know, and I would argue that, you know, when you go back to the 19, you know, the First World War and the Second World War, we actually had a quantum of negativity, Tom, about what was required to get those debt-to-GDP ratios down. First World War, you needed to see minus 10 real rates, and it took five years to get back to real rates being normalized. You know, post-World War II, you had to go to minus five, and it took 10 years. Now, I think one of the problems is that actually by limiting real interest rates, sorry, nerdy, (laughs) yeah, you said (laughs) it was going to be a nerdy section, Uh, by limiting real interest rates because of that 2% inflation target that we've got around the world to Mm -hmm. minus two, you've actually slowed this process. So I think that's the big problem, that the inflation targeting has caused some of the problem that we've got here. And and that's one of the issues that we need to overcome. We need more flexibility, not less. And David, this alludes to Marvin Goodfriend's Jackson Hole paper and the raging debate of how to push real and even nominal rates lower. 
Let me ask you about the speech we heard yeah. yesterday from the Prime Minister. Uh, we were having a conversation with Michael Holland a little earlier, as Tom mentioned, and he was painting a rosy picture uh, of the UK economy, that things have gone better than many expected in the wake of that, of that vote. Uh, she set a timetable. She stuck to the timetable at least as much as she could. Uh, what does that say about where we're going to go from here? Well, I think, you know, let's go to two things. First of all, so far it's been a phony war. And the key thing is that the Bank of England stepped in on day one and they said, you know, we will give you the liquidity that you need. Please use our currency to drive that lower. And it's that currency weakness that has provided the insulation here. You choose how you want to take your medicine. And, you know, the bank said, let's take it through the weak exchange rate. A bit like Italy did in the 1990s. The UK is becoming the Italy of Europe once again. You know, it's... Uh, and you should have a discount for that. Going forward, you know, what I would say is that our, our headline in our, our research take, is taken from the Irish Times the day that Theresa May announced her 10-point plan. Everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. The Mike Tyson... This is the, this is the European view of what they are going to do to the UK. It is not going to end well. It's going to be hard Brexit. It's going to be chaotic Brexit. And we are going to end up with WTO rules. And, you know, if we're going to need um, currency weakness to offset some of those um, harsh realities. How did Prime Minister May's remarks echo off the stone buildings on Threadneedle Street <laughs> yesterday? How, are the, how is the Mark Carney and his colleagues going to interpret what uh, you she know, had to say? Uh, you know, well, well, I think Mr Carney has shown very clearly that the Bank of England is very, you know, remember that we, they want to get inflation up. They want to have, you know, the, uh, the, 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 you know, they're prepared for a short-term boost to inflation. You know, that's what central banks have been trying to do. You know, I think they will get worried if we see inflation carry on above 3% for a number of years. But, you know, because what's happening is a real income is being compressed. At the moment, UK consumers are overcoming that because they're saving less. They're seeing their utility bills go up but they still want to go on holiday, so they're borrowing some more and they're saving less. But you can't do that forever, and that's when the, uh, the, the problem starts to arrive. What is the constraint of tax reform from debt to GDP? There's any number of ways of measuring this. The way I measure it is it's over a double from the debt to GDP of Ronald Reagan. So I, I'm, I'm less concerned. I think Japan tells us that the level of GDP can be coped with for a period of time. What happens is about debt sustainability. And so if global growth slows, if U.S. growth slows, if U.K. growth slows, then your debt limits become you know, really binding. You know, it's, if you've got nominal growth, you can get out of it. But remember, the lesson of history, Tom, yeah. is that the creditor always pays. And there's only three ways of getting out of debt. Default, debase, yeah. or devalue. And this is Joe Stiglitz has been way out front of this. And this David Girl, to, to finish with a nerd fest, is the little <laughs> G. And unfortunately, Ian Hartnett has to leave because if he stayed around, we'd have to go to logs. We'd have to go to logs. <laughs> we, we don't want to go to I logs. I think we set a record for laureate mentions in that segment. I think there we were did. more than five. Well, so. there, was, there, was, there was, I think, 2003, we had like an eight laureate uh, a late, section. An eight laureate uh, section of the show. Mm. Ian Hartnett, thank you so Thank you, Tom. Great to see you. Thank you, David. Um, absolute strategy research. Greatly appreciate this morning. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith. Incorporated member, SIPC. It has been far too long since we spoke to Ian Bremer of uh, Eurasia Group. Uh, Dr. Bremer changed the dialogue 
of international relations with any number of phrases, including this interesting world we live in now, which has a very G0 feel uh, with it. Ian Bremer, good morning. Hey, morning to you guys. Tom, good uh, to be with you. Ian, I, um, I saw yesterday the greatest juxtaposition in international relations I've ever seen, the eloquence, the fire, the passion of Prime Minister May's speech, and then the leaden silence of the European response in Brussels. How's this going to play out? Was the body language we saw yesterday indicative of how ugly this Brexit debate's going to be? Well, uh, I mean, I think one thing I'd say is that while Theresa May has done a, a, as, as good of a job as could be possibly expected uh, to get the U.K. looking like a unified actor, uh, that's going to be impossible to keep up. And you'll see that with the great repeal bill and challenges uh, from Parliament now that they've actually triggered Article 50 um, to what it's going to look like, what that actually is going to look like, you know, problems within the Tory party, problems from Labour and in opposition, uh, and, and also, of course, problems from the Scots who uh, want to move ahead with a second referendum. So the pressure is both internal uh, on both sides for May, and, of course, the Europeans uh, also facing a French election if Le Pen actually wins, which is a possibility. The idea that you're going to have a constructive Brexit negotiation is effectively zero. Even if that's not the case, it's hard to imagine that this is going to be smooth sailing from a very deeply politically dysfunctional EU and their member states. So lots of economic reasons why we should have a good and functional Brexit deal between the EU and the UK every political reason to believe that they will not be able to get their houses in order. You know, as I was listening to Donald Tusk yesterday uh, deliver that statement, I don't think I'd call it a speech, Tom. I think it was more of him reading a, a statement on what had happened. He talked about the uh, the unified European Union. He and the, the, the 27 members would be approaching this in a united front. How confident are you that that's going to happen? How much, uh, how much unification are we seeing here among those ranks? Uh, I'm completely confident that there's no such thing as a unified approach yeah. uh, among go. the Europeans. And again, keep in mind, this is going to be done over two years. All of these countries have their own electoral cycles. They have a lot of domestic elements to play for. You already saw this with President Hollande saying that modalities need to be agreed to before you can start the actual uh, substance of those negotiations. Very different from the position that Tusk um, and Theresa may take right now. Now, you can say, well, Hollande is a lame duck because he's about to lose the elections. Well, precisely. And over the course of the next two years, you're going to have a large number of heads of state, uh, elected leaders, and want to be elected leaders across Europe that are going to do their part to score points domestically, irrespective of what damage that happens to cause to the Brexit negotiation process. That is not their mm. problem. But it will be, of course, the problem of those of us that hope um, that the UK yeah. deal can be smooth sailing. Ian, illuminate us on the French election. I have the joy right now of reading Jonathan Fenby's wonderful one-volume France uh, on this election. What is lost in translation in the reporting? If you look at the culture and fabric of France, what are we missing in the analysis? I think there are two things. The first um, is that the French as a nation are easily as exceptionalist as the Americans are. Uh, it, what, what the, the fact that Trump was elected, the fact that uh, Geert Wilders did badly in the Netherlands, those things are not fundamentally affecting the way the French are thinking about their own elections. They're French. Um, and so uh, they'll go in with their own dynamic. And their own dynamic is deeply problematic. A president of the establishment uh, whose approval ratings are literally 
daily in the toilet and is seen as particularly failing on migrant and security issues. Um, Macron, um, certainly um, a, a charismatic uh, person who is uh, anti, who is, is outside the political uh, establishment, but is neither left nor right, and so no one is super excited about him. So the second important dynamic is that turnout is absolutely key, and if not that many people vote, you guaranteed that the people that support Le Pen are going to be out there. Final well, point is that social media, Le Pen is killing it, doing vastly better okay. as well as the issues she cares about than other candidates are. So I think there is a real possibility that Le Pen is the next president. From the Eurasia Group prism, she has the ability to get a marginal voter, as did Mr. Trump. That's exactly right. Uh, Ian, secretaries of state collect frequent flyer miles like George Clooney's character in Up in the Air, usually. You can go to the State Department website and see how far they've flown. I look now at where Rex Tillerson's been. It's three places, uh, maybe just under 20,000 miles here in his tenure thus far. He's headed to Turkey, headed to Brussels. What do you expect he's going to talk about there? Why Turkey? Why there right now? That's right. He's getting neither the frequent flyer miles nor the ladies uh, that George Clooney <laughs> did when he traveled internationally. And looking at Rex, that's not none of that should surprise anybody, right? He's up there age-wise, and he's already accomplished what he feels like he needs to accomplish. I mean, Hillary Clinton got all the miles, but she wanted to be president. She had something to prove. Um, and, uh, you know, look, I, I, Rex does not have the relentlessness uh, in terms of I'm going to work 24-7 to get a deal done that, let's say, John Kerry did around Iran. Um, but he is an adult, and he knows a lot of these leaders well. I, I think he's going to do a lot better in parts of the world where he has experience. The fact that his first trip was Asia didn't help much because he really doesn't have any background there. But, you know, the Gulf states, uh, the sub-Saharan Africa, Russia, East Europe, he's going to be much more comfortable, and he's going to be received extremely well. Um, I, I think there was a lot that was made out of the fact that he didn't bring any media with him to that Asia trip, just one loyalist. Um, you know, frankly, again, if you're Rex Tillerson, you don't have the same view of the utility of the media as someone like Kerry or Hillary Clinton, who were career politicians right. and know how these guys need to play. Yeah. The single thing that worries me the most is that Tillerson's direct access to Trump has been virtually zero. And I yeah. think that if that continues for the next six right. months, he's not going to stick in the position for a while. He doesn't need this, and uh, ultimately he's not going to be seen as marginalized or humiliated, humiliated in the position. Now let's come back. Dr. Bremer with us this morning with Eurasia Group. But of course, oh, excuse me, it's only one block. My fault. That was my mistake. I was, <laughs> I was somewhere between the eggs and the sausage at the Power Breakfast Pier Hotel, and I missed that uh, cue. Dr. Bremer, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Ian Bremer of Eurasia Group. This is not the most important interview of the week, the day. This is at least the most important interview until you re-up your lease or redo your mortgage. Jonathan Miller joins us with Miller Samuel uh, right now. I want to know in the dynamics of the market nationwide, but in the big cities as well, the sanctuary cities, are the sellers coming down or are the buyers buying up? Which is it? Oh, I think it's clearly the sellers are coming down, especially as you skew to the higher end of uh, any housing market. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the Trump bump, especially since the election, and there has been a noticeable uptick in uh, activity. We're seeing, when I say noticeable, I don't mean huge. I just mean we can see an increase. Um, but what, what we're really seeing 
which is really interesting, is for every big transaction you read about um, in the news, in most cases, the seller came down, you know, 20, 30, 35 percent off of the last asking price. And that's an important step in a market uh, trying to, uh, to uh, heal itself. Okay, but what about the, what, beneath the mega deals? It's not in the New York Post. I don't care about some umpteen gazillion dollar property. In the real world, what are prices doing? Uh, in the real world, prices are moving sideways uh, uh, in, in, in even a little drifting a little bit lower. Um, we're going to see uh, you know maybe a little bit more of an uptick in the uh, next couple of quarters uh, just because of the increase in activity, but inventory has been rising so so you know, that, that keeps uh, price yeah. growth in You check. don't know this. David Gura just re-upped in Brooklyn. Yeah, he got two right. free months rent in a boxcar of kale. <laughs> right. It was great. They wheeled that puppy right up to your house. A boxcar. Oh, yeah. What, uh, what's, what's happening with the rental market here in Manhattan, here in Brooklyn? I mean, uh, are prices going to continue to go up? Who's paying five figures for, for renting apartments so, here? So uh, uh, both Manhattan and Brooklyn are doing just about the same thing. We've seen a, a tremendous uh, influx of uh, new product, and most of it has been skewed towards the higher end. So what we're seeing across all markets is we're seeing um, a price, uh, the price growth is cooling. Um, if you, the lower you go in price, the more likely prices are rising. Um, I don't think anybody factored in uh, during this new condo development boom in both uh, in, in, the, in New York City that about a quarter of those buyers ended up being investors. And those investors go on the market and compete with these new developments. Uh, and, and one other thing is that we're seeing record landlord concessions. We continue to see that about a third of the market tenants are getting significant concessions from the landlord just because landlords are trying to keep the, the buildings full. And that seems to be working. Vacancy is not expanding. Uh, but uh, I don't know how much longer, the, how much more they can offer before they really have to start cutting prices. I was wandering around uh, Wyeth Street in Williamsburg over the weekend in the shadow of these tall towers they've built on the, the water. I gather a lot of those are rentals. We hear what's going to happen with the L train. They're going to close it for 18 24 well, months, now, maybe. maybe. even 14 months, Maybe, right? there you go. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean for that neighborhood? What does uh, it mean for people who are living there, renting there? Well, I think it has much more of an impact on the rental market than the condo market, because condo, your period of ownership might be a decade. Rental, you're, you're only... So I think it's going to really hurt uh, the rents there. Rents are going to be very soft, because the commute is going to become a lot more difficult. But you'll see rent... You'll see you'll see more rent pressure as, you know, they're going to... Dri- those tenants are going to drift to other, other neighborhoods. See, see, this is the difference. I, I'm trying to do a national show Sorry. worldwide to intrigue our <laughs> yeah. audience. We're, we're David on the Gers, East River. David Gers looking for your next loft, Todd. Area yeah. Directly down the street from where he lives. Jonathan Miller with us with Miller Samuel. Help me here with the acquisition of a house. You've been so good over the years about saying, forget about all the mumbo jumbo. You can't get a mortgage. Is it? Is it better now? Uh, credit conditions still remain. So, so I, it's not that it's better in the in the sense that mortgage credit has eased. What it is is I just think the players are better at at getting through the process or through the system. Uh, You know, I think the best thing that can happen to, and it sounds uh, counterintuitive, but I I think that mortgage rates continue to be 
really way too low for credit to, to noticeably ease. Yeah. And so there is a trade-off between people that are payment-focused and uh, how people feel about uh, you know next year with their job and whether they're going to get a promotion. The question I get all the time, because somehow people think I'm a conduit to knowledge on this, <laughs> is how much money down do you need? Whether it's a mere mortal property uh, in a suburb of Boston or yeah. a condo in San Francisco or maybe in Washington, it's somebody trying to step up to live next door to Vanka. How much money down do you need? Uh, well, the I mean, the, the, the standard default really is 20%. It's still 20%. But, but you can Certainly, there are many options to get far less than that. Uh, it's just um, the, the, the more exceptions to the process, the diff- more difficult the application is. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. If you look at uh, over the last decade, interest rates have essentially plunged, and mortgage origination has too. So that missing variable is really credit conditions. That's interesting. So, so how closely are you watching the Fed? How, how worried are you about, about rates going up? Well, you know, uh, after this last increase, uh, uh, the Yellen um, increase, we have uh, rates sort of drifting lower. So I don't know if everybody buys into uh, that rates are – because we keep talking if rates are going to continue to rise. The Fed may try to do that, but I'm very skeptical that that mortgage rates are going to continue to rise and, um, and we're going to have some kind of issue with that. And if they do, what's important to realize is that a, a decade ago, mortgage rates were 2% higher than they are now. And sales volume in a, I'm sorry to be specific to yeah. New York, uh, sales volume was at an all-time record. So, so interest rates aren't the only piece to the housing puzzle. What do you see nationally right now? I mean, I know you've got with Miller Samuel a huge New York bias, but you do a lot of other city work as well. Yeah. What do you see, what's what's the, 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 the distinction of your next uh, memo? So so the, 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 the big pattern that continues to evolve is that housing markets continue to be softest on top, whether we're talking about rental or purchase market. Um, uh, the West Coast is in a better position than the East Coast, that they're maybe later to the party. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the timing difference is. It's clearly... California, the housing market there is a lot tighter than it is on the East Coast. Are people on the fence about whether to rent or buy? Is there is there any solution to that argument? Well, that's the age old right. uh, uh, rent price because you know generally speaking, it's still a lot cheaper to uh, to buy. It's just the down payment is the right. is the and, the and getting through credit conditions. But um, and I, I've said this in the past over the last year and a half. You are seeing record sales activity in, again, sorry to be New York-centric, but we're seeing this in other markets, too. We are seeing record sales activity continue in the outlying suburban markets of New York City as renters priced out of the market are becoming first-time home buyers. The volume is multi-decade highs. Don't be a stranger, Jonathan. Uh, Miller with Miller Samuel, of course, with his wonderful work on the countability. What's great about this, folks, and you don't see it within the interview, the back drop of statistics that he has is jaw-dropping city to city and particularly in the boroughs of New York City. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.